Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Mark chapter 14. We're reading verses 1 through 25. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can go do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she, what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. They are prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all don't have an excuse. <clears throat> I do. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we come to listen to your voice, to hear your mighty revelation of your Son and all that he's done for us in our redemption and salvation. Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. I'm going to keep this short, atone for my sermon from a couple of weeks ago in order to also make it through all of this. 
But we are entering into Holy Week uh, this morning where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, a passage that we covered several weeks ago. And here we have Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. As you know, one of my favorite uh, Southern authors is a woman named Flannery O'Connor. She was a Southern Catholic who grew up in Georgia. She settled in Milledgeville, Georgia. She only lived 39 years, but in those 39 years, she produced an incredible number of short stories and novels. It's the short stories in particular that I find myself loving. And the thing that draws me into O'Connor's stories is the ambiguous ending that almost every one of them has. See, she has characters that are sometimes self-righteously Christian, and she has characters sometimes who are proudly atheist. But the stories end the same. Ralph Wood, who is a professor of English at Baylor University, points out the common feature that these stories have. Listen to his description. They end with a searing revelation that strips away the protective veneer of autonomy and leaves the character naked with self-knowledge. What he's saying is that there's a moment of disclosure where everything is made plain and the character has to face their own heart and who they are in their own fallen, broken, sinful humanity. O'Connor doesn't give the answer. She simply leaves you. And she says it is that moment of grace, that is her title for it, that she likes to end her stories and leave you wondering what the character does. Because what she is attempting to do is to press us to see ourselves in the story. And Jesus does the same thing. That there is a very similar dynamic when we meet Jesus is that there is a disclosure of our hearts and it begs for response. And what we see is that there's two essential responses. There's a faithful response and a faithless response. In 14, 1 and 2, we see that the scribes and the chief priests and the elders have a faithless response. They are hardened. We saw this at the end of chapter 12 where Jesus critiques the scribes. But then there's also a faithful response as well. At the end of chapter 12, we have a poor widow who gives everything she has to God. And then here in chapter 14 in verses 3 through 9, we find another woman giving everything she has to Jesus. And Jesus says she has done a beautiful thing. And so the big question for us this morning is what does this faithful response look like? In that moment of grace where we are disclosed before Jesus and our hearts are laid bare, what does a faithful response look like? It's fairly simple. We turn to serve Jesus with a wasteful extravagance. So what happens? This woman takes an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. And what Mark writes is it's very costly. 300 denarii, which is roughly a year's worth of wages. This was an incredible source of security for this woman. And yet she brings it and she breaks the flask, making it of no further use and pours it upon Jesus' head. She begins to be sneered at we don't know exactly, but it seems that it was the disciples saying, why this waste that could have been sold and given to the poor? Why did you do this thing? 
But then Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And friends, this is the heart of Christian discipleship. That when we have our hearts disclosed in front of Jesus, when we are laid bare, is that we then turn and recognize the grace of God in Jesus' cross that serves us. And so the question is no longer, what must I do to serve Jesus? What must I do to serve the King? That's not the right question. But rather, it's what can I do to serve the One who has served me? It's two very different postures. One is looking to limit it, to put it in a box and contain it. What do I have to do in order to be religious? And one is asking, what can I do to serve the One who has given me absolutely everything? And friends, we will never come to actions like this woman who does this beautiful thing for Jesus, laying out her security and her future, extravagantly wasting her wealth. We'll never get there unless we know what it is to be gripped by Jesus' service of us. That that's the profound change that has to take place in our lives. January 8th, 1956, five men were martyred in eastern Ecuador. It's the most famous story of martyrdom in the 20th century. Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian. They served with New Tribe Mission. They were convinced that God was calling them to convert the Aka Indians who lived on the eastern side of the Andes in Ecuador. It was rural, very rough country, difficult to access. They had had some initial contact with the Indians, and it seemed positive. And so then they were going in for a personal encounter. They landed their plane, having seen that the Indians were approaching the beach. We don't know exactly what happened, but sometime around 3 p.m. that afternoon, they were speared and hacked to death. Their bodies seen from observatory aircraft. Back in the United States where the men had come from, several pulpits began to ask this question, why this waste? Five young, fit, intelligent, educated Christian men given their lives. And the question was being asked, why this waste? It's remarkable the similarity to the disciples' response. Why are you doing this? They were sneering at her. And friends, these men thought that they had offered their lives in service of Jesus as a beautiful thing. Offering their careers and their vocations, and then they paid an ultimate price for that career and vocation where they lay down their life for Jesus. And friends, the world will not value the sacrifices that we make for Jesus. They won't esteem it. They won't find it impressive. But are we willing to be so moved by the cross of Jesus that we will do an extravagantly wasteful thing that can, that can cause us to lose everything? That we don't know exactly what it means. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, that the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, that those who died should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
that that's what it means to have the heart disclosed and respond to Jesus in faith. It's to then freely turn ourselves over to Him. Not trying to earn. We're not trying to gain anything from Him because He's given everything to us already. But now we're responding with an extravagant wastefulness to give ourselves fully to Him. And what is the most extravagant thing you've ever done for Jesus? Think about that. Considering the ways that He's served you, what are the ways that you've sought to serve Him? Have you ever been in the place where you've been sneered at because someone thought it was silly? And what is Jesus calling you to today? Have you rested yourself content in something that happened 20 years ago or 10 years ago? And allow this claim of this woman's example to beg the question of how can we extravagantly serve Jesus in our lives now? What does it mean for us to give ourselves and the best of ourselves to Him? Forsaking all security, forsaking all hopes of the future, but giving ourselves to Him. And friends, this is an incredible commitment. We know that there's one deeply and more incredibly committed to us. But it begs the question is what do we need in order to sustain this commitment? This road and journey of laying ourselves and self-sacrifice out for Jesus, what do we need in order to sustain it? Because obviously we live in a nasty world of betrayal and heartache. In verse 10, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. A woman has just given up her money in order to serve Jesus. And now Judas, for money, gives up Jesus. Okay, It's just a rich irony in the passage. And we live in this world of betrayal and intrigue, hardship and heartache, sin and suffering. And Jesus felt every bit of it. He experienced it down to His core. And what He promises is that we would feel the same. And friends, so what do we need in order to sustain this commitment? And Jesus' answer is simple. It's food. We need heavenly food. Heavenly food that imparts life to us, that allows us to sustain this way of following Jesus in extravagant self-sacrifice. You see that in verse 12 is the first day of unleavened bread. This is the feast of Passover. And Jesus gathers His disciples as He's being betrayed and He institutes a meal. And the Passover is fascinating because it was a remembrance and celebration in Israel of God's past deliverance of them from Egypt. But you see, when they gathered for the Passover meal, they weren't simply ever just remembering the past. It wasn't just about history. It was also saying that this God who remembered us in the past is going to take us into the future. And He will deliver us as well. And it's into the middle of that scenario that Jesus steps and He reinterprets the Passover meal. He hijacks it. And He takes the church service in a different way right in the middle of it which would be a mercy right now if one of you wants to offer. But the biggest question for us is what is happening here? 
as Jesus takes up these simple elements of bread and he takes up wine and he says, this is my body and this is the blood of the new covenant, what exactly is going on? There's at least two things that we can affirm about what Jesus is doing. He's giving a gift to his disciples to sustain them. The first is this, is that we celebrate our freedom bought in blood. That is what's going on when we approach the Lord's table, is that we're celebrating a freedom that has been bought in blood. Jesus uses the language of this is the blood of the new covenant. This has two places that it shows up in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9, verse 11, and also Exodus 24, 8. In Exodus 24, the people of God redeemed out of Egypt were sprinkled in blood and set apart as His people. In Zechariah 9, we are told that the divine warrior who was going to ride in on a donkey, that yes, there would be a new covenant in blood that would mark out the people. And friends, what is being announced when Jesus takes up those words and He says that My blood of the new covenant would be shed for many is that has arrived. That the warrior has come to free His people through His holy war, which involved His own death and His resurrection. And so friends, when we come to the Lord's table, the implication is this, is that we become, because there has been a victory, there has been a covenant established that marks us out. And so the Lord's table, when we come to it on different Sundays of the year, it's not a dirge, it's not a funeral. There are somber aspects to it, but it is celebratory. It's joyous because it's announcing that the great victory has been won. That we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus. And friends, this sustains us, calling us to remember what has been accomplished for us. That our worth and value before God is not dependent upon the sacrifices we make for Him. But yet, rather, by looking back and remembering all that God has done, we are sustained into the future to continue to love and serve Him and do things like this woman who anoints Jesus at Bethany. This is how the meal that Jesus gave us sustains us and builds us up. It's a celebratory thanksgiving for all that God has done. The second thing that's happening here is that we commune with Jesus who gives us life by the Spirit. Many people are still bothered by the words Jesus uses. He says, this is my body, holding up a piece of bread. He says, this the blood of the new covenant, holding up a cup of wine. And many are uncomfortable. Why does Jesus so closely associate His body and His blood with these elements? And of course, that has been a source of controversy for many, many years in the history of the church. It was traditional in the Bible for signs of the covenant to be associated with different things and where the names of one thing could be attributed to another. And it wasn't saying that there was any hocus-pocus going on and things were suddenly transformed. But what Jesus is saying seems rather clear. That in coming to the simple elements of bread and wine, that we do commune with Him. And it's not because they have become bread and wine, but because He has appointed them for this task. And that we commune in the risen Jesus. 
Because remember, just in the history of the church, and particularly where our theological tradition comes from, there was an argument taking place. You had Luther on one side of the argument, and he was saying, no, Christ is in, with, and under the bread and wine. And so there is a local presence of Jesus. And then you had another group on the other side saying, no, 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 when you come to the Lord's table, you're just remembering. You're just simply remembering. It's a mental exercise. And so you eat the bread and you drink the cup and you remember all that Jesus has done for you. And then in walks John Calvin and some other men who worked with him. And they begin to affirm something that both sides were saying. They wanted to affirm for Luther that yes, there is a real communion with the body and blood of Jesus. And then they wanted to affirm with the Zwinglians on the right side that yes, Jesus' body is not locally present because His body is in but one place. It's in the heavens. It's at the right hand of God. And so it can't be locally present. And so what Calvin would say is that he would go on to say that it is by the Spirit of God that we commune in Jesus. Eating His body and drinking His blood to our spiritual nourishment. That it is a real spiritual eating that takes place and Jesus pours out life to us. It's why Jesus in John 6 could say this. Listen carefully to His words. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as Calvin and so many others have seen, it is this abiding in Jesus, he in us and we in him, that is the core of our salvation. That we have to be connected to him. And that the Lord's Supper is one way of building and strengthening that union that we have with our Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. And so it's a gift that God gives us in which He pours out the life of Jesus into us to strengthen us along the road as we travel. Now some of you may be confused by that statement. John Calvin confused himself. He got to the end of all of his theological writings about the Lord's Supper. And do you know what he said? At the end of the day, this is a great mystery. And I'd rather enjoy it than understand it. And friends, so the great value is to understand that God pours life into us as we come to simple elements of bread and wine to sustain us with the life of Jesus. That spiritually we feed and we're nurtured and strengthened to go on another day in the service of Christ to give ourselves fully to Him. The third thing that's happening here when Jesus gives us this meal is that we anticipate a new day. You notice that Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And Jesus here very explicitly is picking up on Isaiah chapter 25 where God promises 
the great day of redemption when He will return to unite heaven and earth, making all things right, removing sin's presence, eradicating death. And listen to how it's described. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And Jesus here is taking up these words to say that He will once again commune with His people, eating bread and drinking wine on the great day that is yet ahead. And this is the value of the Lord's Supper for us is it's an anticipatory feast. It's a foretaste of a greater meal that is yet to come when all God's people will be gathered together, redeemed from the nations, collected into a new heavens and new earth to celebrate and live forever. And friends, whenever we come, we come in anticipation of that great meal. We are looking forward with a great hope to the future. That yes, we have a meal that allows us to commune with our Lord Jesus to find strength in the present. And yes, we have a meal that celebrates our past redemption in which we've been bought in blood. And we have a meal that leads us to the future when every tear will be wiped away from the eyes. The sad things made untrue. Pollen will be eradicated. Sin will be destroyed and death will be no more. Friends, that's the value that God's table has for us. It's a meal worth eating. And it is the meal that sustains our devotion to Jesus. As we look to the cross, as we look to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and all the grace of God that intersects our lives.